Welcome to the Verzopolis podcast. I'm Mitya Drap, and today we are talking about artificial intelligence and human creativity in poetry. Joining me are Dr. Tracy Gayri and Dr. Zuzana Husarova. Tracy is the director of the national and international poetry organization, the Poetry Archive. Last year, she worked on an AI project titled The Collective Message, presented at the World Expo in Dubai, where an algorithm which drew lines from a hundred contemporary British poets was used in an interactive installation to explore whether a computer program can express the complex nature of humanity through verse. Also with us is Dr. Zuzana Husarova, a scholar, author, and an artist in the fields of electronic literature and text-based performance. Her poetry collection, written by the artificial intelligence poetess Lisa Genard, titled Outcomes of Origin, won a Slovak National Poetry Prize in 2020. She is a lecturer at the Digital Arts of Academy of Fine Arts and Design in Bratislava. So first of all, I welcome you to the podcast. Really happy to have you on. So Tracy, let's start at the beginning. What exactly is poetry that is AI generated? In my case, and um, what I'm learning about AI is that every case is completely different. In my case, it was to create an algorithm that could be part of the expo to create that collective message that's based on Stephen Hawking's idea of the breakthrough message. If we ever made contact, how could we explain who we were? And poetry was chosen as being a global language that it explored human emotions in a way that can be shared globally. So that's why they chose poetry as the language to, uh, to kind of convey this message. Um, what we did is worked, we were part of the poetry expertise end of that. The, the AI was told to um, receive words donated by people and from that word develop a couplet. So it's a very specific piece of training that this AI was given, had to develop a couplet from a random word. So it used these 100 poets and over 15,000 individual poems to kind of learn how to do that. So it produced a couplet which had to make sense and had to be as close to poetry as possible. So whilst the AI was de de developing couplets, the organizations, which was the Poetry Archive, the Poetry Society, and the Scottish National Poetry Library, we worked to pick through the language and try and make it, when we recognize metaphors, I think that's certainly what I did. It's when, when I found that the machine had produced a metaphor that created an image in my head that gave me a secondary meaning, that to me started to become poetry. So it's it's anything that that will produce that language that does that. In this case, it was a machine, and it, it took a while to learn how to do that. So does AI poetry kind of complement traditional forms of poetry, or does it represent a total radical break from it, historically speaking? Is AI poetry the great game changer? Susanna? Um, I mean, the uh, everything that um, AI poetry presents is the result of the database, database and data set that is that is um, trained on. So um, most of the time, or the beginnings of the, um, we can call it machine learning, not really AI, because I mean the examples mostly that are that most of the people are familiar with, I mean GPT two and GPT three, and the chatbot AI um, is is still machine learning. It's not AI as most of the people understand AI as the artificial general intelligence. So this is still machine learning. So um, in going to keep it in a more um, transparent way, this is still machine learning. We are not in the general intelligence at all. Um, so um, it all depends on what is it trained on. And um, in the, at the beginnings, it was mostly trained on on uh, the historical text on the historical poetry because that's what um that's what's free that what you get on the internet and in order to to build um a bot or or a generated poetry generator you still need a big database and most of the database that is free is of the old of old poetry but um there are also examples um, of GPT-3 nowadays, so it can generate poetry just when you give a prompt, generate poetry. So you can do generate contemporary poetry, you can do generate poetry in the style of someone. And since GPT-3 was trained on a huge, huge number of, 
of text. It was trained on one and contains 175 parameters, a billion parameters. Um, so it contained a lot of books as well. So it can write to a poem in the style of Gertrude Stein, for example, um, since these books were part of it. But you can also still generate a prompt, try to write a contemporary poetry, but there it doesn't succeed as much. So it's still a result of what you train it on. It doesn't have anything like its general consciousness or its unwillingness. It doesn't want to write poetry. So it's what you give it as a prompt that gives it to you as, as a continuation. So it's all the time just um, just just um, predicting what the next word will be. And that's how it creates other texts. So there's a... Yes, go, go ahead, Tracy. Sorry. Do you think from that that there is a sense that it lacks originality, um, that individual originality, because it's kind of been told what to say? I mean, most the and if we if we think about how it was trained and what what the results are, it is basically a a medium a mediate rate of what the texts are. It's the it's the um it's the approximation of everything that it learned from. So um, it can provide interesting metaphors and it can provide interesting um, verses, for example, artistic poem, because it because the combination of the of the words in a sentence or in a verse is somehow unpredictable for us as the readers. But for for the program, it is just a continuation in the probability that is the highest probability as it perceives. So it is original in the way that somehow the metaphors are original, but I mean, the language is still the language of um, billions of texts that it was trained on. So um, of course, there were the authors that were original in their time or still are nowadays, um, but I wouldn't say it is completely original. It, like um, sometimes people say about Aurelisa that they can recognize her style, but she was trained on the Slovak contemporary poetry rather than the old one. I mean, there were there was also a mix of the older ones. Um, and she has kind of a twist in the language that is weirdish. So so there's a, a little bit of weirdishness. So it's not uh, technically it is um, it is the medium of of the Slovak poetry that it was that it was trained on, but I mean sometimes it provides quite interesting examples. Um, so it's like a mixture of those two, but I don't see technically speaking there the originality because it is still uh, what it learned on. So were there any problems, Tracy, that arose with the with the machine learning algorithm in the collective message? It was, it was challenging in that in our case, it was based on lots of older text. It, it, the, the group that were building the algorithm tended to choose the out of copyright works. Um, and they, uh, they chose a broad, a range of works, but the, the first pass that we made through its training was to remove the archaic language, to remove that sense of old style, um, the O's and these and vows that come through in British poetry. It also tended when it was going to the older texts, that naturally means that most of the publishing was, was published by male poets. So there's a, male, a slight male bias in there. They fixed that with the contemporary poetry that they began to run through. But the early days, we kind of were teaching it to be less masculine, perhaps, um, but certainly to speak in contemporary English, um, to have a, a wide range of language that everybody could understand it was to be available to the public as a sort of game. You know, it, it was to be no barriers for people feeling they could come and play with this machine um, to donate words. So you didn't need to be a poet or understand poetry to be involved. Um, and the project ran for a year, year and a half. And, and the rules it was given was that it wasn't allowed to repeat itself. So, you know, if somebody gave a couplet, then it had to get an original couplet every time. And I think with the quite narrow language that it was given, in the beginning, only 15,000 poems, that's really quite 
that's a very narrow slice. But it, it kind of ran out of nice things to say. And after a while, it started to have to search harder and harder to get a couplet and started to borrow some of the words that that didn't work well together, some clashes that, you know, either suggested violence or misogyny or or other things that that things that we didn't want in the program or that nobody would want in any program. So it kind of tended to that, but it was forced into that by the rules it was given. So for a certain amount of time, it did work. It, it grow, you know, rose up these, these couplets that when you read them, it caused you to think about something, but within a couplet, you know, it was quite a brief touch. It was a, a brief piece of connectedness. Um, but yes, yeah, after a while, with, within the laws it was given, it stopped producing good poetry. That's really interesting. But um, in comparison, Susanna, you said that Lisa is distinctly feminist in her outlook, right? Or in her writing. Yes. Yes. And the, the reason for that is that we trained our um, algorithm. It was based on the GPT uh, database, but it was fine-tuned. And this fine-tuning was done on um, seven, on the on the books, on the collection um, of around 2000 weeks. And they were, um, they were published by seven uh, Slovak people. Uh, mostly poetic um, publishers. And one of them was uh, a feminist uh, publishing house called Aspect, and is based in, based in Bratislava. Um, but into the mix, we also gave some of the um, some of the older works by famous uh, romantic uh, authors and all the women that were part of the kind of uh, publicly free fund. Um, Plus, we added there the all the all the issues of three um, very interesting Slovak journals that deal with culture and literature. So, and she is really feminist in her writings. Like she, she is not. Um, she doesn't have any biased text. She doesn't um, want to kill anybody. That is not. It's not xenophobic. It's not um, misogynistic in any way. So um, that is also quite interesting. That. Truly, the database that you build it on um, reflects also the text that she provides. She really has um, you know, quite interesting um, kind of um, texts that deal with the bodily issues. She's all the time questioning her body, whether it belongs to her, whether the hand is hurt. Um, so she's... Um, Kind of interesting in the way and quite romantic as well. Even though the percentage of the romantic literature, I mean, um, historically speaking, wasn't there huge, um, she has their kind of, we can maybe call it not completely romantic, but maybe metamodern in a way that she's basically um, kind of not only questioning herself, but also having their, um, this kind of like the touch of, um, of the aloneness, of accepting it, questioning herself in the context of the others, etc. So I mean what we know from metamodernism nowadays. It's so fascinating that she speaks of the body, isn't it, when yes. when there isn't one. And it comes back to that, you know, the early days of fear about computers, but you know, that message that computers are only as clever as the person using them. And then with AI that's taking another step, but it still is true that the AI is only as intelligent or, or opinionated as the person that produced it. And I remember when I was doing film studies, we thought the Hollywood film system was representative. That was the representative film system globally, Hollywood. And then as you learn more and you go through those studies and film studies, you very quickly learn that, no, that's, that's a very small perspective of the world. And once you learn the techniques and that, 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 that guided, um, determinism is put through in, in the way it's cut, the whole production system, the patriarchy, the commercial system, the economic system, that then creates the film. And suddenly it's a whole different thing. So it really goes back to the food that you give the machine, that what, what it will create. And that's so fascinating. Can, can an AI ever be an individual? Yeah, that's the question, because nowadays I think it is still mirroring the society, mirroring the text that it sees around. So it was trained like that to do it. So um, it still basically reflects us. And I mean, the the harm that you see and might see and the the kind of the, the negativism there, it reflects the discussions on the Internet. So 
I mean, um, yes, I mean, there's no surprise in it. Mm -hmm. So that's really interesting how you said that, um, how do algorithms actually understand metaphor? Uh, because good metaphor, at least for me, is something that surprises me, that jumps right at me from not expecting it. But um, this might change when we, for example, go from GPT-2 to GPT-3 uh, machine learning uh, language model. So how might, how might uh, Lisa change if you ever plan on uh, going GPT-3? GPT um, uh, the first thing, the first thing is that I mean, the neural networks don't understand metaphors because they don't even understand language. I mean, for them, the language is a formal. Um, they they understand just the formal formal criterion of how the language is built based on the sequence of letters. And for them, these letters are basically just just mathematical symbols. So it just sees it as a translation of mathematical symbols and builds um, like. Um, like a, like a scale or a, um, or a sinusoid out of it, and then tries to fill in the sinusoid um, in its own way. So it doesn't understand language. So it's just prob probability of the next coming numerical sign that it mean translates into. Um, so the understanding is always on the human part. Um, that's why you know, what is interesting for us is um, basically making it poetry so i mean the poetry here is we can even kind of um use the use the um kind of um the the idea of the aesthetics that is based especially on the side of the readers so reader reception theories as we would go into the theory because um I mean, the communication signal is not only coming from the author i mean there's the human author that made it into a book i mean the neural network doesn't want to write poetry on itself um and it's his or her conception that is the base of it uh but it's mostly on the side of the reader how they understand the poems or the text that nobody really wanted uh, to be told in this first place so there's no persona behind it there's no uh basically author with the feelings or with the body behind it so it's just a continuation of the science that for us has a meaning um, because um, we have the semantics um, kind of developed in ourselves, but the neural networks don't have this, the semantics of the text done in this way. I mean, nowadays with GPT-3, um, they made a really kind of interesting step of the feature extraction. So it means that also based on, based on the combination of the text uh, and the image, I mean, um, I mean, it it is starting to kind of learn or understand the the kind of what something means, but it's still not the semantics in the way that it would know um, what a complex of love means. I mean, um, so it's completely different than how we understand and what it understands just by having a tag of something that this is it. It's still not understanding in the way of our understanding. That reception theory is really interesting. When when I when I connect with a metaphor, it's because it's part of my own experience. You know, if I if I hear a metaphor about a leaf, I'm taken to being seven years old with a particular tree, and that's where metaphor is driven from me. For uh, you know, a, a partly intellect, but memory plays a huge part in it, and that human experience. So I always do wonder that that you know, a, a metaphor provided by a machine. Can it provide that kind of sense of recognition of the human experience and the whole complexity and flawed complexity of the human experience? But if I were to receive a poem in my hand with no identifiers and it included those poems, I would I would still have the same reaction. So it's a very, very complex thing. Um, and, and also that awareness of its authorship, that's where that becomes so important. So many people, when they come across poetry for the first time, it's in a book. It's got the author it's written by, and you you consume it as that. You know where its origins are. But yeah, if it came on a piece of blank piece of A4 with no identifiers, it would it could still be a great poem. Yeah. So and actually, that, cheated. That, yeah, yeah, you <laughs> might feel cheated. Yeah, that's that's interesting because it seems that then the 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 main function of poetry happens more on the receiving end. As much as on the uh, generative end, so like 
if if it evokes a certain emotion, certain feelings, then it doesn't really matter if it was written by a machine or or uh, a human, because uh, it does something to us that uh, resonates with us, and um, it ultimately has value. But as you said, somehow we still feel cheated in a way. That's that's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, point. I think if, I think if if it turned out that it to be a machine, and then you know, if I examine, why would I feel cheated? That's a ridiculous thing you know my my gut instinct is oh i would feel i'd been conned and then when you think about it no if you've enjoyed the poem and it's resonated then it's completely as valid as every other poem it's a it's a very strange thing perhaps it goes back to that basic threat of artificial intelligence and human intelligence the basic oh they'll get us in the end because they will always be better than us because we are so flawed so maybe there's always that at the bottom of it a, a, a human fear but it's also kind of like some, there are the situations when you feel cheated because you thought it was a human author, but then there are the other situations when you know it was done um, by a machine. And sometimes you are surprised by the quality of it. That is kind of the other way that you start to kind of think about, I mean, um, I mean, the basic concepts of the poem, because it challenges the concepts of the poem that it's not it's all the time the channel of information from the author to the um, to the reader through the medium of of a text or in a different medium etc et but um there's always this channel um so, but with with the the poetry that is generated by neural machines you still kind of think about that it was generated from this database so you you have a kind of different concept to it i mean you understand on a different level i think than you understand the poetry by the human because then you imagine a human experience and here if you know you don't imagine any experience you just imagine the mixture of the text and you imagine like where are we when this can be done by just just a click by a prompt so you think about more i think more conceptually like where these prompts come from, how it was done, why it was done, why is it necessary to have, um, or is it necessary to have a generation generative poems by um, neural networks? And who is it for, if it's not for the author? Because when you think about poetry all the time, think about, I mean, the whole concept as well. I mean, the poet or poetess comes, they have a reading, you meet with them, you have kind of exchange of information, life experience, or just position to the world. But here, you don't have kind kind of no exchange. You just have yourself and the knowledge that it wasn't done by someone. So I think you are more, you are kind of reading more than if you are reading just the author. Because That's exactly what people said to us when we, because this generated a lot of discussion about that. And there's lots of people told us that they prefer AI poetry, particularly because of that extra power they had as the reader as the consumer. It was an open sheet. And they, what they loved about it was they could go in and take their experience, knowing that that was the only transaction going on was their experience in the poem. And it made them feel more powerful. It empowered their reading, that they could put their experience into the poem. And it became their poem in a sense. Exactly. Like we have one poet, one, um, one poem by um, Red on the radio by Lisa and um, one Slovak poet. Um, she started crying when she heard that. So, I mean, wonder if she would cry. She probably would cry also if it was written by a human. But that was really interesting that she, I mean, she cried because it was so beautifully done. But it is kind of also interesting that she didn't only read it, but she heard it performed by a really good performer. So there's this whole think how you do it so that it touches you. You can do it with the purpose of touching you, or you can just present it on a really ugly A4 paper with a, any bed structure, how it prompts. Um, so basically there is the whole, um, kind of like the, the whole bag of things, how you decide to do it. That also influences the readership. So kind of, uh, <laughs> Uh, the the old maxim how it goes how you say what you say is what you say right yes <laughs> something like that so I think this is a good point to talk about your poetry collection Lisa's poetry collection outcomes of origin so what were the reviews or like uh, what was the reaction from the public um, oh, we were really surprised that it was positive 
Uh, maybe there were also some negative ones, but we didn't really get to them. Um, sometimes it even came that some people on the internet, when there are kind of reviews on the internet, I mean, not by reviewers, but just kind of by kind of on the side of the publishing house, um, that, I mean, anonymous reviewers can just say like, uh, like, uh, a short paragraph i mean some say that this is red because it's the end of the end of the authors so i mean they will finally die and i mean this can be just 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 the poetry that is generated and uh, we were really sorry about that because um we didn't just publish it in itself i mean we published it but then i wrote like a 10 page um an essay, not really an essay, but ten-page text where we explained how we did it, why we did it, and I also gave the history of the Slovak electronic poetry. So it's a part of it; it's like a continuation of it. So I didn't want to kind of have it standing uh, on its own, but I mean, being a part of this tradition, and and we wrote it, wrote the that um, we meant it as an honor and contribution to the whole Slovak poetry um, that we know about, and we want to kind of enrich this culture and giving it as an honor to them because this is basically based on them and learned from them this is just a continuation uh, so i mean i stated it there but still then somebody comes and kind of takes it in his or her own words which they can do but um it didn't go in the line where i wanted it to go uh but then all the others were quite positive i mean they, they were all quite surprised uh, that a technology can write such poems and that, I mean, the, the poetry that she somehow seems to have her own kind of idiosyncratic voice that is quite weirdish. Sometimes she even mixes the uh, the genders. So she starts the poem as she and then somewhere is he. But since we kind of made it as a, as a feminist text and stated that this is a feminist way, then everybody understands it in this way. So it is also really important how you conceptually frame it so that it somehow works. And and um, we also we were also kind of very transparent about what we did in the, the collection, how we trained it. Um, and in, in the interviews, we also say how long it lasted and it was just two days. Uh, we used kind of publicly available cloud that, I mean, didn't really ruin any any energy because it was freestanding and would otherwise burn energy for nothing. So um kind of kind of gave there the statements of how it could be understood also from the technological point of view. That's really great. <clears throat> so what, what do you think that like this uh, machine learning poetry scene should it freely mix with the the author poetry scene? Or should like poetry collections come with like a little disclaimer? You know, this was done. Uh, this was done with the uh, with the help of the machine learning neural network algorithm. For example, there's an interesting example from David J. Johnson, who actually kind of uses uh, AI algorithms in tandem with his authorship. So then, if I understand his process, he actually generates uh, neural network poetry, and then. He kind of uses this as a waterfall of words and ideas, and then he redacts and he takes things out and actually trims away what is not necessary and creates poetry this way. Do you think, Tracy, that um, this this should be taken totally with uh, in the same regard as poetry done by authors, or does it does it kind of need to have its own scene with its own rewards and so on? That's a very big question. <laughs> it's I can see how authors and certainly publishers might be nervous about this concept. Um, as we know, poetry is generally published for love, but there is also the commercial imperative. Very few publishing houses will say they're making millions from selling poetry, but they have to make money for selling poetry to generate the, the ongoing publishing machine. But a machine cannot hold copyright. So, you know, in law, so if a machine produces a poem, anybody could use it. You can't copyright that unless it's had human intervention in its creation, which I'm sure with Lisa, that's where that it, it can be copyright. But machine poetry can't be owned or copyright. So it's harder to make money from. So I can see that publishers might see that as an opportunity. 
If it's good enough, yay, they already own it. They can sell it in any way they like. Um, and big corporations and various people could just use it. So that might be interesting. But then in other cases, that might be a challenge to authors who need their travel page, who need that very prosaic, you know, to be fed and watered themselves. So I can see that that will be a challenge in in future. If it does develop and go on, then that's an area of, of friction. Because if if writers of poetry can't afford to go through a poetry process, or if that edifice crumbles, the commercial poetry process, um, then yes, it's going to be more and more difficult for people to choose to work with humans that need a payment or work with a machine. It might alter the balance of who can and who will produce poetry in future. Um, already poets have day jobs. Nobody's a full-time professional poet. Very few, very few luxury people are full-time professional poets because there isn't the money there to keep you fed. So yeah, it's really, really really interesting about um, that dichotomy of where the commercial publishing industry comes into it, which is the traditional way of sharing. But now we have social media platforms, which are radically undercutting traditional processes anyway. It's all part of a much bigger description of what is the relationship between humans and AI, which we have to solve because it's coming, you know, in a hundred years time that they, we'd better have the conversation now because it's in a hundred years time. We don't even know what's going to be there, but it will need to have a structure around it. Yeah. I um, I think that if somebody writes poems um, with the help of AI or a kind of write, the AI writes the poems, I think it should be transparent. I think it should be transparent for you to know whose poems you are reading. So either there should be written, it was done in the process of uh, assisted creation, assisted creativity, which is a term, and I mean, we use it. Or, so, I mean, you could have there written with the help of which programs you wrote it, or written that this wasn't done by me, but it was done by, by the program. So, I mean, there have long time been the tradition of Google poetry, for example, that you just give a prompt into Google and it kind of process something and the authors published it under their names. But that is also kind of questionable, like they are the authors because they came up with the idea, but technology helped them, but they usually in the process of, of the writing or in the book itself, write that this is a Google poetry, it was done like this, like this, like this. So it is the more like conceptual approach. You can use the technologies, but you should write their conceptual statement, how it was done. So I think this is a debate, like whether people will be cheating themselves only of pretending like it is happening nowadays, sometimes in academia, that somebody writes a paper uh, on ChatGPT, pretending it is theirs because they don't want to write it. Or, but I think the authors are kind of, don't really want to cheat. I mean, they're, they're kind of have the name that represents should represent somehow the quality of thinking. So I think our approach could come as an example of how it can be done so that everybody knows, but you still enrich the public debate by the topics that hasn't been here or by approach that uh, can be considered somehow um, interesting. So we should think about how to use technologies to be transparent, but still bring new ideas or new way how it can be done, rather than just uh, you know, posting the text as yours. Yeah, and to make it a, a, a positive thing, your yes. publication story in Lisa is an incredibly positive story. It's interesting, fascinating, and that's where I is adding value to something. So yeah, it can be looked at as a really positive thing, and you should want to say how the work was created and say, oh, you know, we did this and it's fabulous. We use this machine as well and as a positive thing. Um, and that's that's the best way to look at it. If you go at things with the negative, the outcome will be negative. And if you look at them with a positive, it will generally develop more positively, I would think. Yeah. And I think it is also, um, I mean, the idea is that we own the technology. I mean, we don't own GPT-2, but we fine-tuned it the, the same way that you did with the with the AI poet program that you did. I mean, you own the technology, so you are responsible also for how the data was treated, et cetera, et cetera. Now when somebody, like uh, with the GPT-2, that was most of the time the case, 
Uh, with the GPT-3, some of the people used it interestingly. Also, like York Piringer with Gunstiga Intelligence, that is the book that was released just now, that is kind of like some of the poems or the one page of the poems is his, where they are written in a somehow essayistic style, very contemporary. And the other one is kind of somehow response of the GPT-3 machine. Or um, Aladdo McDowell's book, uh, Pharmaco AI, it's also written as a conversation. But if somebody just publishes books, uh, publishes a book by AI, by GPT-3, uh, that this is a book done in this way, for me, it won't be just as interesting because everybody can do it now. So, I mean, the poets or the artists usually try to find the ways how they do it differently than what is generally understood as just a click. So either somebody comes with a really interesting concept uh, how you can reflect on this. I mean, there definitely will be a really interesting concept, um, but I mean, it cannot be just putting a prompt and let it generate. So either the prompts will be kind of out of the world or um, they'll find a way how to engage with it in somehow assisted creative creativity type of way that has been done with GPT-3. I don't really know about poems that were done with GPT-3 as a book just by GPT-3 because you cannot train it. So that is yeah. also kind of, um, I think it's a really positive example in in kind of the whole world poetic community, how it is engaged with um, with this human and computer interaction. Yeah, because presumably when when you're generating the AI poetry, the point when the, the, the machine has finished, that's the end of the point of creation. So you've taken that and you've, you've done more. So you've added to that creativity. But if I, I do agree that I think if somebody generates a poem and then says they created it, that would that would be an inaccurate. That would be a falsity. So that's where you would feel that, no, that's that's not true. Um, and poetry, if anything, has to be about truth. So, um, yeah, it's it would be a fundamental not true if you said you'd created something because, you know, the machine had already done the creating you've actually not done any creating unless you are going to put it in the context and add to it contextually and creatively afterwards yeah that's really interesting also, i'm sorry just one thing i think it's also the form a little bit different in performative arts like it has all the time been that i mean the, the song writers i mean where all the the song was written by somebody else and then the performer performs it so, I mean, but the part, the the kind of creative part is in the performative type rather than in the text. So you can still differentiate, like the text was written. Sometimes we do it that text was written by Lisa and then I perform it because I want to have it publicly somehow received. And I don't like uh, Google voices because I think that's another kind of a little cheating. So then I perform it, but we all the time say that this is Lisa and we are performing it because it's in the part of the reader and we are in this process, the readers plus the performers, it's like a different role. So, so also kind of people can play with it in different way, but I think it should be kind of um, written how it was done. Was it important to you then with, with Lisa reading that it was a female reading? Could a yes. man read Lisa's yes. poems publicly? Yes. We want to kind of like strengthen also the feminist tradition in uh, yeah. like yeah um, kind of feminist approach. Yeah, that's really interesting. So the creativity again is like uh, in the fine tuning. Then, right? You said you, no one wants an AI where you can just click and it generates every time you click, it generates a poetry collection. No one wants that. So the trick will be again to to um, discern yourself from others by this creative process of fine tuning. Uh, the the machine algorithm so no because soon i feel that exponentially this uh supply of new poems would surpass the need for poetry i guess so we always look to do the same things in new ways i i feel in poetry so um yeah it, that's was, great yeah go ahead i was um having an interview with another poet in the uk and they made the remark that we were talking about poetry being for everyone, poetry being the great oral tradition that is open to everyone. And he said, well, you know, I'm not sure I believe it's for everyone. If everyone in the planet was walking around with a poetry collection under their arm, where would the impact be made? If everybody was into poetry and poetry 
truly was for everyone. Um, you know, the, the gift of poetry is that it's for some people some of the time and, and that that it does. And that's what gave it his value. He was saying that if if there, if poetry is generalised to that extent and it loses its value or, or we're in danger of losing the value of poetry, losing that kind of high use of language, which is an interesting but so. there's there's also kind of um just just quickly adding that there's also kind of other like with the poetry it's not only kind of poetry writing but I mean then you have the process of reading it uh, performing it traveling etc and now when Apple came with kind of the audiobooks that are generated by AI this is not really um kind of on the side of the poets now the debate now it's the the of the of the debate is about the actors and the actresses that I know are they losing the jobs? Maybe not because if they if it wouldn't be generated, it wouldn't exist. So I mean they are not kind of losing the jobs, but they are not also getting anything out of the process that was normally contributed to them. So I mean when we talk about I mean text generation and, and computer generation and poetry generation, so it's not only as poets, but I mean it's the but like the whole system that it is affecting somehow. It also academia, debates, theoreticians, actors that are performing it, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, I mean, the main body are mostly us, but then, I mean, the, the debate is different also for each of those other fields. Yeah. So that's very interesting. Do you think that, what is the um, trace you mentioned that, uh, not poetry is not for everyone but do you feel that these new technologies employed in poetry could um make it more accessible to a younger audience what do you see like the status status of poetry today with younger people well, we had the poetry archive and we found that actually younger people wanted to access poetry for children so we created a second site the children's poetry archive because we felt the need to have somewhere where young people could go, navigate themselves and, and listen to poetry that's more directed to them. So, yes, it's important what you put into any young person's mind. So, you know, if you're going to put anything to a young person's mind, make it good, make it enriching um, and all of those things. But whether AI, whether it would be damaging for children and young minds, I'm I'm not so sure. Again, if a young child really enjoyed a poet. Um, in our experience in the system, the younger the person is, the more important it is for them to meet the poet and see the poet and have fun and play with the poet. And that kind of interaction, poets in schools, is something that we should fight hard to keep. You know, an actual poet going into an actual school will have a bigger impact than just poetry being presented. Um, and through the school system, certainly poetry is presented in a way to pass an exam. Um, and there's raging debate always, certainly in the UK, about the quality of teaching, the quality and the the amount of poetry that is presented in schools. It's shrinking every year and, and it's getting more and more difficult for schools to include poetry in their curriculum because it's not one of the STEM subjects or it's not being counted. So it's, it's time is being squeezed. But um, young people and children tiny children aged three upwards, reading age upwards, really love poetry. They get it. One of the most listened to poems in our collection is um, uh, Spike Milligan and uh, basically is a, a poem making noises, but they they love it. It's that it, it, lots of rhyming noises and um, bounce and rhyme. They, they love it. They get it. They get that meter and the language, you know, m much more quickly. So uh, it's important to have humans attached to that in my opinion but kids will consume poetry all day long they you know they're really good at it if they don't consume tiktok right that's yeah yeah i mean they are getting so much information from so many different channels you know the school system is the main place where everybody sits down together and learns a curriculum and it's vital that that includes poetry and language I also kind of really agree with Tracy and there there I see one example where it could help the young generation and for example in the also assisted creativity that somebody if someone wants to be a poet rather than kind of receiver 
of the poetry rather than the reader and or listener. Um, so there you can basically write your poem, uh, ask GPT, can you can you restyle it um, so that it sounds more educated? Or can you restyle it in the in, a, in the meter of the 18th century? Or can you make a Shakespearean um, narrative out of it? Or can you kind of write it from a different narrator, narrator's point of view? So basically you can do stylistic exercise that somebody else does it for you and teaches you how to do it rather than having um, kind of a, like a poet or writing assistant. So this can help like in the writing assistance. If somebody wants to write and doesn't know how to do it or doesn't have and doesn't go to kind of writing courses, I think writing courses are much, much better than um, than ChatGPT. But if somebody wants to do it in their free time to see how differently one topic or one example could be written or how it could be enriched in the eye of somebody else, I think this is this is a good way. I think it could be done as a writing assistant for this minimum number of cases, like, like checking grammar, writing emails. So really like a like an assistant in a way that could also enhance creativity. If you see, like you can either read 100 exercises of the of style by um uh by a really famous Olympian poet, or you can kind of get your poem done in different styles and see kind of how creatively it could be done. And that would probably so inspire the child that they would want to go back and read as they grew up. It would engage exactly. them with that body of work rather than be a barrier. Yes. Yeah. I think it could kind of help in the way of not thinking about the points of being somebody else out there, but seeing that you can also do it in quite an interesting way. Could, as you said, I mean, the break the barrier of kind of, um, of um, kind of a boss type attitude or kind of privileged person type of attitude. So it could enhance the creativity in this way. Mm -hmm. I'm really fascinated about that, the, the discussions around gender and gendered machinery. Certainly in the UK, and I'm sure globally, that the, the, the fighting for rights of recognition of genders, it's a conversation that's really strong now that didn't really exist 30, 40, 50 years ago. It wasn't in the public domain. And those voices are only going to get louder and stronger. And these questions have to be settled. How many genders are there? How do we recognize gender and what makes gender? And we're going to have to have those conversations about AI, not only what makes humans human, which, you know, what is the different, why are the differences, but what, you know, what gender is a machine? Is that further rights? What rights need to be given to machinery? At some point with AI, we are going to need to convey them human rights. They're going to need protection from exploitation and all of those things, you know, in, in a thousand years time, they will have voting rights, I'm sure, and, and all sorts of things. Those conversations need to be had. And this is such a fertile and, and wonderfully open ground to have all those conversations in. Um, and poetry can do that because it's about language and it's about human experience. It's the perfect playing field to, to have that game on. I just find it fascinating. I love the idea that Lisa is female. <laughs> so uh, what, what gender would the collective message be, for uh, for example? Uh, is it like predominantly male because it was trained on male poets? Yes, it, it was it was male, British male, with mm. all the all the wonderful stuff and all the awful stuff that comes with that. So yes. <laughs> but as you said in an interview, uh, you, you've only we've only uh, seen the toddler walk. We haven't seen the adult, you know, take form. So, how might this um, change? Is still super interesting to see. And this project will go on. Will you? Will we see ever to uh, the collective message grow into an adult? No, I think that was a one-off project, and the use of the AI going forward will be in language recognition and in teaching and in education and in business. It will have. The application outside poetry in in more general kind of AI language use. Mm -hmm. So what is like the question that you have about the future of AI in the forefront of your minds right now? What is what is the future prospects of all, all, all this, Susanna? 
I have a kind of short term and a long term. I mean, the short term is uh, I'm really interested in who comes up with really interesting ways of how how ChatGPT or ChatGPT3 can be used. I mean, except from the examples that I kind of um, said already. So, I mean, what it could be done that is basically in your way all the time, but still makes it somehow um, kind of um, unfamiliar. Let's be said, like literariness is about kind of making the familiar non-familiar. Um, that's by um, you know, Shklovsky's concept. So how is this defamiliarization going to be somehow interestingly done on the text that we have in front of us all the time, uh, basically our internet world. So uh, that is the short term, and then hopefully it will be answered in, an, in a year or in a half year. And the long term is um, basically if, like, where will it develop in like five or 10 years? And uh, if we have done enough so that it develops in a positive way, rather than in an in a in a somehow in a negative way or in the way that we don't want it to be. Tracy, do you have any thoughts My on that? My long term I'm an archivist. So the Poetry Archive keeps recordings, a representative recording of a poet reading in their own voice. So we can hear where they breathe, where they pause, how they pace the work. Each of their readings will be different, but we make a recording, we keep it so that future generations can come back to the archive and still listen. Our earliest recording is 1890, was on a wax tablet. It's Robert, it's Robert Browning, um, Charge of the Light Brigade. So um, what AI should I be keeping as an archivist? That's a huge question. Should the archive start keeping representations of voices? I would love to have some of Lisa in the archive. Um, how in, in 10 years, am I still keeping AI poetry or will there just be too much? Um, will people want AI poetry kept in something like an archive, where the interest at the moment is to hear the voices as much as anything? It's a, a an oral, AU oral tradition. So, yeah, it's, it raises huge questions, huge questions for me about what should be preserved for the future in that kind of archiving sense. I don't know. I, I can see the world kind of billowing out and there's a limit to our resources. So, yeah, very interesting in what should be preserved? Why would it be preserved? Or does each individual machine then become its own eternal archive because it has that capability? Interesting. What do you think about that, Susanna? I think it's extremely interesting. Um, I haven't I haven't thought about kind of archiving AI texts yet. I mean, we have, I mean, Lisa's some of those texts, but um, I think those are really crucial questions uh, because I still think that when something becomes so publicly available and so much in your face, I mean, most of the kind of artist approach is not to deal with it anymore. So kind of um, my idea was that, I mean, not that many people will be interested in the kind of AI poetry after four or five years, because I mean, it will be in your face all the time. You will get used to it. It will be like everybody else's, like there's nothing special about it. Uh, so I still think that as as it is said in the other um in the other fields, that the human factor will gain more weight, power, money. So there will be less people, um, for example, being taxi drivers. But if you order a taxi driver, you will get you will pay extra money for it to be human rather than a Google car. So I think this might also be. The, the case in and the graphic design we will pay more for the graphic designers because there will be less of them and the kind of um a poster of a 16 year old young boy band might be done by kind of the first approach that somebody comes up with and that might be done by you know mid journey mid journey next, next level or something so and this might happen also with the poets but i think with the poetry people do it mostly because they want to write rather than they have to write or rather than they have the money for it. So I think you are also kind of losing money if you write poetry, because if you wrote I know, either something else or did something else in the same time, you will get more money than 
by whatever you gain by doing poetry. Even if you have kind of like four readings per month, you still don't earn that much as if you kind of, I don't know, there may be something else that will be art related. So people do it because they want to and because they have urge or they have, they love poetry, love the world, love people and want to deliver something. So I don't think this will disappear because it hasn't disappeared since the oral ages. I mean, the poetry was the first and one of the first genres uh, of art uh, in general. So I think this tendency will be here. So, and the people will want to write it as opposite to the, the mediocre text that is presented by AI. Um, so, and but the question is that there might be few of them who will be successful, but I mean, they will be more successful maybe than the rest because those who didn't really think about it as, a, as truthfully, then they might not do it anymore. I feel that I think like, also, yeah, please express it, go ahead. I think also now that you've won a prize and that has got some kind of more general acclaim that more people will think, oh, hang on, you can win prizes in this. And more the, the, the applicants next year, there will be a lot more possibly AI applicants to this prize because they've seen it happen. You've you've kind of blazed a trail there. So yeah, it might be the competitions now will start to receive AI poetry. That definitely will happen. But yeah. I mean, I am afraid that I'm afraid, I mean not not probably in Slovakia because we are really small market or central Europe is still small. But I mean they might still many of them might want to do it as a as a kind of like mock-up as um kind of with doing it in an assisted way, but mm. not kind of claiming that it's theirs, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I think I think the whole mm -hmm. it as as we had there is a question, I mean, it will more open up to admitting technologies are part of the creative process. Rather than thinking as many of the people think if you ask them on the street, they still think that poetry is just kind of out of your muse and you don't do anything else, just kind of listen to the news that you wake up in the morning until the end uh, of the day, and that's what you write, rather than think about it as a filter of the knowledge that is out of there. So I still think of the poet as the filter of external impulses, internal impulses, somehow the mixture of all of that. And that is also what, um, what the AI does somehow, but I mean, uh, they don't really listen to the people as we do you know, with the outside world. So they just filter information in a text base rather than kind of think about it more complexly. I also see like this dystopian uh, future kind of a little bit funny, maybe tongue in cheek that um, when AI poetry will become so widespread, there will there, there, there will be a natural reaction to it. So like a cult of people will arise who will say, no, we will do a poetry the old way it was meant to be done, you know, and uh, uh, we will preserve our human heritage and so on. So um, Nick Cave was one of, uh, he's probably one of these people who in a, a recent reply to a fan, he came out as a strong opponent to GPT poetry that imitates his style. Um, but um, so he was really like, uh, came out as a strong opponent against it. But uh, it's really interesting that um, in the epilogue, Susanna, that you wrote for Lisa, uh, you state that if humans acquaint the programs with a literary heritage, neural neural networks might understand us better in the future. And I see here a connection with Slava Zizek, who in his Pervert's Guide to the Cinema says that movies teach us how to desire. Do we, by feeding food into our AI bots, teach them how to desire in turn? Will they learn to express this desire better than we do and ultimately understand ourselves better? So with a little tongue, tongue in cheek, is it possible that AI can ultimately become our own best therapist? Um, many questions uh, for a short time. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Tracy also already mentioned, I mean, the food that we feed in, um, and there already are AI therapists. So there are AI therapists that, I mean, you can chat with uh, before the chat GPT existed. Many of them kind of collect data um, and later on, um, you know, either ask you to subscribe and kind of send the money or later on develop another version that it will be kind of made as a therapist. So, I mean, the AI therapy is already here. 
um, uh, poetry has nothing to do with it, uh, luckily. Um, and the um, the question is like, um, we wanted the ethical approach uh, to whatever being, whether organic or non-organic. So we wanted to kind of like give somehow kind of um, interesting results done in a transparent way, somehow with ethically engaging with the text because we got them with the confirmation um, of the publishers. Um, and we wanted to claim that it can be done also like this rather than being trained on the whole um, on the whole internet. I also think there are interesting examples of how it can be trained on the internet if you really want to show somebody in your face like how the world you know, works outside on the internet. But we didn't really want it. We wanted something that is um, still trying to preserve the language of the poetry rather than just reflecting on the internet's type of um, jargon. Um, so, and in this way, um, it can be a guide to the people, but you are still, you still don't know what the neural networks will know in the future. So we didn't want to feed them another internet kind of buzzwords and um, kind of um, negativisms, et cetera, et cetera, rather than giving a positive approach. So basically it was the question more like, we don't know where it will be developing, but we want to give like a different type of example. And we know that human, we know that um, internet connection where there is no account accountability and you can be an anonymous troll that's where the negativity comes and people seem to think they can behave that way online because you know no accountability and anonymity um in a way that they wouldn't say in front of you those things they wouldn't dare come and have a face-to-face -face human interaction so that's when that kind of direct human interaction improves relationships in a way that ai and anonymous interaction tends to inevitably it seems lead to nastiness and people feeling they can be nasty so if you're training a machine i would you know my impulse would be to train it on human face-to-face -face interaction and original human creativity rather than letting it loose on an internet to learn as suzanne said all those all the terrible things that that kind of lack of accountability will produce yeah, so it is still a filter to the humans, but somehow a very negatively charged filter to the humans, because I mean, it's also said that the negative information shares four times faster than a positive information on the internet. I don't think it is the case in the normal world, or I am blindsided by my positive bubble. I don't know which of those cases is true, but I mean, I still hope that, I mean, the world isn't as ugly as the internet shows us. Yeah. There's that saying that if you have um, if you have a good time, you will tell five people. If you have a bad time, you will tell 15 people. <laughs> and there's also the, the the realness of the Brandolini's law. Have you heard about that? No. The Brandolini's law. It's also uh, it's also uh, um, known as the bullshit asymmetry principle. It says that the amount of energy needed to refute bullshit is an order of magnitude bigger than the need to produce it. This is also a problem. <laughs> so maybe this stems right from the physical principles of entropy and so on. Everything tends to go to disorder and, uh, you know, thermalization, while order is more difficult to maintain and so on. So th this might be a problem too. Yes. And this is the species that is designing powerful AI. <laughs> you want to be worried <laughs> at some point. <laughs> Precisely. Okay, so we're nearing uh, the end of our talk. So would you have, so Susanna, do you have some closing remarks or do you want some work that uh, you want to draw attention to your, like your projects that you're, are going on in your life right now? Um, I don't really know when the podcast will be released, but nowadays until the 11th of February, there's um, the exhibition by, um, by Roime für Notizen, it's in Vienna. Um, and um, it's an exhibition by kind of a really worldwide uh, group of people represented in it, uh, mostly poets. 
and um, it's about putting different media reflected to the algorithms. And most most of them kind of deal with also um, neural network generation. So if you are somewhere near Vienna or kind of just or watch it uh, or look at it online, some of the kind of interesting examples that are that, that there. So um, that would be kind of very topical also to to our theme. Nice, thank you. So this is uh, uh, this can be accessed on YouTube or? No, it cannot. But I mean, uh, you can uh, maybe kind of kind of look it up. You can just go, see. yeah, okay, and see it live too. That's great. Okay, and Tracy. Uh, oh, for me, what? for the archive, we're we're always interested to talk to other archives. If you have an archive of poetry, then do please get in contact. We would love to start collecting translated work and European work and we can be a place where we can look after that stuff and preserve it forever. So we'd love to hear from you if you have archive poetry that we might be able to collaborate on and, and work with. That'd be lovely to talk to you. And you can find us online under the Poetry Archive. Thank you very much again for, for sharing your valuable time with me. So this is Susanna Husarova and Tracy Gary. Thank you again for the interesting talk on AI.